pray with me? Father, we just want to be amazed at that truth that you invite us to call you Father. Though we are apart, though we were your enemies, Jesus has made it so that we are drawn in, we are loved. We not only see that you're holy, and we love that you're holy, but we desire by your grace and your spirit to be holy. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus we're sons and daughters, in Jesus we're made brand new. So we want to grow up more in what it means to be yours, to be like Jesus, to call you Father. We pray for just this time that your word would speak to us. You'd have your way in us. We pray for our tithe, our offering. We pray that you would bless what we give sacrificially, what we give joyfully. God, remembering that you are our provider alone. Thank you for your grace in all things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. It's good to be with you. Um, We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Continue on in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. And John records the words of Jesus here to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, and repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you've ever maybe watched a movie kind of in the time period of the Industrial Revolution or uh, maybe read about it, you, you, know, um, you know the Industrial Revolution was really an awful time um, to try to, to make a living, um, to take care of a family. Uh, in the Industrial Revolution, there were zero regulations on you know, what you had to pay, so people were paid the absolute uh, bare minimum uh, conditions were extremely dangerous. You, know, you had children working. Uh, work days were 14 to 16 hours a day, um, all just to barely scrap by. And I think that um, they had a mindset we didn't have um, because for the songs and the hymns of the church in that period, they're more about heaven. They were, they were looking forward to some kind of end to life. 
And I think we can get ourselves in that place in the Christian life where it feels like we're laboring to no end. You know, we, we tend to get uh, tunnel vision. We, we tend to not be able to see past the end of our noses. And the Christian life just ends up feeling like what I'm supposed to be doing. It just feels like labor for labor's sake. But Jesus talks to the church at Ephesus who's kind of gotten this mode. And he's talking to them about kingdom labor. Kingdom labor. Remember, John said in the first chapter, he was their brother, he was their partner in the kingdom. In the kingdom. So I think Jesus takes our eyes um, and and he helps us see both the, the value, the preciousness of laboring for his kingdom and the great end to which we work for his kingdom. Kingdom labor is what he talks about. And in verse 1, he says something that he's already said in a description related to Jesus. And each time John talks to one of these seven churches, it'll be a reference back to a description related to Jesus. And what you see here in verse 1 is he says, um, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now remember, Jesus told us the seven stars are the angels of the churches. Now, we, now we, we had to kind of talk about, okay, what does that mean? Um, what it does mean is some kind of heavenly representation um, of the churches. So some commentators have believed that um, when he says that refers to the angels of the churches, that's an actual angel in heaven, and they're kind of in a spiritual sense, kind of over that church, uh, kind of messengers for what's going on in these churches, fighting spiritual warfare, if you will. And so we see angels doing a lot of things on God's behalf throughout the book of Revelation. So is that what Jesus means when he says he's got seven stars in his hand, which represents these angels in heaven? Um, which, which stand over these churches. Or does it mean, it's commonly believed, that it's just kind of the persona of the church, kind of the character of that church. So Jesus is, is saying, I've got you know, each church. I know their personality. I know who they are in my hand. I know their faults. I know where they're winning. I know where they need to go. Either, either way, if it's an angel receiving this message or it's just a, a more metaphorical way for saying it, Jesus is, is making this clear. What's going on with you is in the palm of my hand, all right? The leadership you need, it's in my hand. I have the churches in my right hand. And he reminds us he's standing among the lampstands. Now, remember Jesus said the lampstands are the churches. So who is it that has every church in the palm of his hand? Who is it that stands among the churches? It's Jesus. That's what... That's what Jesus wants the church at Ephesus to know up front. This is to the church at Ephesus. And he says to them, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You can't bear with people that are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. You're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary in any of it. So they get, this, they get this huge commendation from Jesus. And that's saying a lot, I think, when you think about what Ephesus is as a city, where they were. Ephesus was um, the most important trade commercial city in Asia Minor at the time. So the convergence of many rivers were there. Um, it had a lot of engineering feats to be able to uh, protect the, the harbor from silting and the drudge that would come up, which was a common problem for cities in that time. 
Uh, this was a city of a quarter of a million people. So that's a big city even by today's standards. You've got 250,000 people um, living there. Um, Ephesus enjoyed um, the, the freedom to kind of do their own judicial work. So cases and legal matters, even though they're under Rome, wrote, uh, Rome allowed Ephesus to kind of do its own business um, in judicial matters. Because it's such a big metropolis, there's a huge mix of people groups from all over the known world constantly moving there, coming into Ephesus. And most importantly about Ephesus, Ephesus had the Temple of Artemis or the Greeks would call her Diana. And this was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It was a magnificent temple. All to hail Diana, or Artemis, the goddess of fertility. So pagan worship um, was, was highly valued in Ephesus. They were known as the protectors, the keepers of Artemis. And it was a huge trade. People would come there and they would buy shrines to Artemis. It's in that context of a plurality of beliefs, a plurality of people groups, um, paganism, uh, material wealth. It's in this place that screams worldliness that Jesus gives this really high commendation to them. Good job. You've remained separate. You've been zealous for Christ while they've been zealous for their God, Artemis, and for business and for material gain. And it points out something about kingdom labor here for us. And it's this. The only kind of kingdom labor there is, is tireless kingdom labor. Tireless kingdom labor. How often do the Scriptures give us those kind of encouragements to press on, run the race, right? Jesus says if something's causing you to sin, what do you do? Cut that body part out. Rip that eye out. Don't look at it. Don't touch it. Everyone who names the name of the Lord does what, Paul says? Departs from iniquity. So it's very staunch in that way. Don't blur the lines. In the midst of a world opposite and hostile, you've got to be tireless in your commitment or definitely you will get swept up. You will compromise. And I think there, there's, there's that... Okay, Jesus knows it's that hard because sometimes it feels like really hard and and tiring. And Jesus to say, I know it's hard. He says, man, I know, I know your toil. And that word toil, it doesn't just mean work. It means work and labor that's really difficult. It's hard to keep doing it. It's hard to do it once. It's it's hard to do it a ton. Jesus says, I know it's that way. So I think it's important for us to ask if if kingdom labor is so important and it's so important that we we tirelessly labor for Jesus, our king and his kingdom, not our kingdoms, not the kingdom of the world around us. What what are those things for which we toil specifically? Because I don't want to waste my time laboring on the wrong thing. Well, the first thing I think we have to say the scriptures teach us we need to remain tireless in our toil and and labors is self. Your own self. You think, well, that's selfish to think about myself. Christianity is about others, right? Not initially, not first. It kind of goes to the whole, you know, if the plane's going down and the masks fall out of the ceiling, don't help somebody else. Help yourself first. Because if you can't breathe, you're not good to anybody else. Following Christ, regardless of the era in which you live, the city you live, it's fraught with temptation. 
Though we're Christians and we have the Spirit, until we're in glory, friends, you and I are endlessly susceptible to sin, and sin is ever-present trying to get us. So if, if you're going to labor and toil for the King, you've got to guard your heart. It's a labor that you must be tireless in. It's guarding your own heart. Now, it's easy, is it not, in the church, especially if you grew up in the church, you know how to look like you're guarding your heart. You know how to put on the right face. You know the right words to say. Good morning, brother. God bless you. Right? You seem like, oh, there goes a model Christian. It's kind of like the same thing with a house. You know, you might be able to keep your grass cut low enough and, you know, your flower bed doesn't have too many weeds. And as long as people drive by on the street, they don't get up to your house. They don't see like what, you know, disarray it's in. Like, oh, wow, there's weeds everywhere. And you go inside and there's holes in the wall and there's crack in the foundation, right? And there's some musty smell and the ceiling is leaking and there's pipes coming through and all this stuff. And it's in like horrible disrepair, but nobody knows it because you know how to make the outside look just barely good enough. But friend, remember this, that Jesus stands among the lampstands. Which means not just in every church, but He knows every heart. Jesus can see inside the home of your heart. And Jesus would have you take care for your own soul, because your soul's a precious, eternal thing, and for it you will give an account to God someday. What is the state of your heart? And in fact, I would say, how well you keep your soul says a lot about how precious you think your soul is and how much you think it's precious that God would think it's so precious to send His Son Jesus to bleed and die for it. So we are in a lot of ways talking about spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. What things are you doing or are you not doing to keep yourself healthy or unhealthy? Jesus came into the home of your heart. What would He see? What would Jesus see? Would He see um, a lot of neglect in prayer? Would Jesus see someone who is very unfamiliar with the Word of God? Someone who um, neglects sharing Christ with others? Someone who um, is very careless in the influences and the media that you allow in your eyes and ears. Friends, you and I often need spiritual checkups in our heart because, you know, I know this with having kids and toddlers, and you do too, like that house can get messy real quick. You know, and spiritually speaking, I can make my my house messy real quick. I, I need a constant checkup, or there will be spiritual cobwebs, if you will, all over the place. Which leads us to the next thing for which you must toil, And that's one another. We have to toil for one another. And I hope I'm a broken record on this. I think I've said that before. I hope I'm a broken record on this. The only way that God cleans the cobwebs out of our hearts sometimes is through the faithful friendship witness of brothers and sisters in the church. So if you are not meaningfully connected in the church, I'm not talking about just showing up on Sunday, but you're not meaningfully connected, you are bypassing the Spirit's method of helping you grow in sanctification, of helping to make you holy. We, we can't say no to 
God's methods of how He's keeping and growing us. I can't say no to that. I can't give reasons for that. And it's vice versa. Other people need me in their life, and guess what? I need them in my life. It's a, it's a body, right? The house of God is made up of people. It's, it's multiple people. Paul says in Ephesians, you're like a body, right? And you're, you're growing up together, all, all of your parts. And, you know, I'll be the first to say uh, it's a toil to bear with the people of God. You know why? Because anytime you put one, more than one sinner together, bad things can happen. Toil will be present. People have uh, monetary struggles. People have spiritual you know, warfare to fight. and They need help. Sometimes people need correction and, and, and they just don't, you know, they're not where they are. Owning one another is often the labor that needs to be done, but we don't want to do it. It's why you get that phrase, um, church hopping. They're a church hopper. Right? Because what we do is we say, that's hard. I don't like those people. It'd be easier for me to just move on. But what does, what does the Word teach us? It teaches us to toil and labor and bear with one another. Jesus says here, bear up for my name. And more than that, He says you should love the church so much, you can't bear if there's evil present in it. So, so He's not talking about here, just evil in general, like, oh, there's evil in the world. Like, we know that. We know there's evil in the world. Specifically in context, he's praising the Ephesians because they're not letting worldliness, immorality, false doctrine inside the walls of the church. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We just walked through 1 Corinthians. Paul says, don't even associate with someone who says they're a brother, yet they're guilty of sexual immorality. Paul says, judge one another inside the church. So it's just as much a a toil and a challenge to guard doctrine, to guard behavior um, inside the walls of the church today as it was for them thousands of years ago. Think about how how tempted um, many would have been to fuse pagan worship, you know, what they had done their whole life in worshiping um, the Greek goddess Artemis, right, with Christianity. Maybe we can have a little bit of that cult. Maybe we can kind of fuse it. People would like us more. Our doctrine would be easy to swallow if it wasn't just Jesus crucified as our doctrine. Maybe a little bit of immorality is okay. Maybe a little bit of drunkenness. Maybe a little bit of sexual morality. Right? And that's going on today as much as it was then. You know, it's interesting. um, You know, you get Ephesians here, but you get Ephesians twice in Acts. Paul and his missionary journey, when he's leaving, and they're all, it says they're tearful. What does Paul say to the Ephesian elders? He says, when I leave, wolves and sheep clothing are going to come in, and they're going to try to lead you off. So it's a big problem. False teachers, false apostles in their time. And friend, I don't, I don't need to stand here and talk to you about, well, I guess I should and assume nothing, how much just the basics of life are under attack. Things as simple as gender. You know, it's, it's amazing. We live in a world where it's, it's a hostile thing to say a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And then you want to dare tie that back to your God and your Bible teaches us that? You dare tell someone who they can and can't love? 
you know, social justice. That's, that's kind of hijacking biblical justice for a lot of people. Prosperity. Self-help. All these things swirl around in our time and you don't have a church holding its chest up and saying, no. You have a lot of churches and a lot of denominations going, well, maybe we could give a little bit here. Well, maybe we could give a little bit there. Well, maybe we could just a little bit there. Much less to be a faithful witness. Because what do we also see in Acts? We see when Paul and Barnabas go to Ephesians, all the silversmith, they get together and formulate a plan to throw Paul and Barnabas out of town because it says that you know, they would make these little silver shrines of Artemis and they would sell these. But he says so many people in all the known world are turning to Christ, it's ruining their business. So it wasn't just an offensive message, it was messing with their pockets. But Paul faithfully preaches Christ crucified in a hostile culture. It's only by patient endurance that we can toil like this. Continue on in it together. Preach it to the world. And not grow weary. William Carey, the pioneer missionaries, said something that I... uh, Gosh, I feel like it's, it's so good to hear because I think I can identify with it, but you can too. William Carey says, if he, being the Lord, if he give me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. And that's what the Christian life is. I know we're, we're told to run the race, we're to, told to go, but let's be honest, it's just hard sometimes. And it's a toilsome thing to resist sin. It's a toilsome thing to be on top of my schedule so I don't let my prayer life suffer. It's a toilsome thing to be present in the life of other people when I don't want to. It's a toilsome, hard thing. But by God's grace, if I can just take a couple steps today and keep going. If by God's grace, I can take a couple more steps today and keep going. I can plod, I can, I can keep Moving. Friends, Jesus is is looking at the inside of your heart and mine. What's his description of it? What's his description of it? What's his description of of providence here? Hmm? Does he say, ooh, you've got some cobwebs in there. And surely we've got some cobwebs and, you know, some dirty dishes in our sink. But by God's grace, we say, Lord, show us these things so we can, we can repent and we can turn and we can pursue You. We can be a faithful light in the world. Let me give my best energy and my best efforts to the only thing that deserves them, and that's Christ, and that's, that's His church, and that's His great commission, and that's His glory. Lord, don't let me live for something smaller. I don't want to live for anything smaller. Have you given your best to the kingdom and the king? But it's on the turn of a dime, Jesus gives them this wonderful commendation, but then he reprimands them. He reprimands them for their labor. Look at it in verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
So imagine you're, you know, in Ephesus and somebody shows up. Hey, the apostle John got a vision from Jesus and he got a, like a specific letter for us. Like Jesus in heaven came down in a vision and gave us a letter. Like us, the, the church at Ephesus. And you're probably freaked out. Like, oh my gosh, what's it going to say? And Jesus keeps going on about, oh, y'all don't grow weary and you're bearing up. You can't stand evil. And so you're like, oh, this is a good letter from Jesus. Okay, keep reading it. But then you get this but. You're like, uh-oh. Jesus says, but I got this against you. You don't, you don't do the things that you do for me from a place of love anymore. It's like, what do you want, Jesus? Like, we're waking up at 5 a.m. and praying. We're studying the Bible. We're going to, you know, Bible study with other people. I'm giving my money away. I'm looking for ways to have, you know, Jesus conversations with people. I'm keeping up with cultural trends so, you know, I don't fall into error. And it's like, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you then, Jesus? And this is such an important truth. Such an important truth. Here's what God wants you to do for Him. Nothing. Because there's nothing that a sinner like you or a sinner like me could possibly give the one true God to make Him happy. Is there something you could do for God to make Him happy, to satisfy Him? What we're saying then, there is something I could do better than Jesus has already done for the Father. You cannot. Maybe if I do this, that would make God happy. Friend, Jesus has already made the Father happy. There's nothing that you and I can quote unquote do to make God happy. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that you and I could do nothing to 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 please, to satisfy God. We're all equally under the, the weight and the burden of God's law that we broke. And yet God sent His Son born of a woman and that God-man satisfied the law's requirements for holiness. That Son spilled His blood to wash over your sin so that you wouldn't be under the wrath of God. That Son was resurrected from the dead and filled you with His Spirit. There's nothing you can do to make God happy. That's what you call religion. And that's, that's the hell that a lot of people live in. If I can keep those rules good enough, if I can just keep those rules good enough, if I can obey it just good enough, friends, the Gospel preaches something far better to us. It preaches Jesus crucified on your behalf. So following Jesus is not about what I can do for God. It's about rejoicing in what God has done for me. The Christian life is not firstly about serving God. The Christian life is firstly about knowing and being known by God. I read it sparingly because I think it's one of those verses that is so serious. You know, it's it's so serious you don't want to Read it too much and lose the force of it. But in, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, you didn't do enough. You didn't work hard enough. 
Now what it says. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. For an outside of Jesus, there's nothing we can do for God. You go forward in Matthew to chapter 10. Judas, just with the rest of the disciples, cast out demons. Judas had some measure of the Spirit, but did Judas know Jesus? No, he, he didn't. What's the will of the Father? What's the will of the Father then? The will of the Father is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Man, that's the will of the Father. And that's good news because it's not about me. It's about trusting in God and what God has done for me. In John chapter 17, verse 3, it's probably my favorite verse. I don't like to give favorite verses, right? The whole Bible's a good verse. But if it had to be, I think this would be my favorite verse. Jesus says, this is eternal life. What is it? What, what is it? This is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's life. It's to know and be known by God. Because Jesus gave His all for me, I get to grow in holiness. See, there's a difference when it's from a place of love or just duty, Right? I get to suffer for His name. I, I get to share His truth. I, I get to fellowship with His people. I get to lose this world and gain the one to come. Friends, we only have that get-to mentality in the drudgery and the toil when we see it through the lens of the love of God seen in the cross of Christ. And it really comes to this question. Do you think as much about God's love as God thinks about His own love? God thinks His own love is pretty spectacular. Because if you look in verse 5, Jesus says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Or you could translate it, Remember that high state from which you have fallen. It's, it's, it's the height of the human experience. In Jesus' opinion, it's, it's the summit of being a human to know that God loves me and there's nothing I can do to make God love me anymore. There's nothing I can do to make God love me any less. Jesus says, go back to that place. Remember that place. Go back there. That's a good place to be, not in just doing what you got to do because you got to do it in drudgery every day. That's not love. That's not in the Spirit. That's not full of Christ. You know who you can't really tame and calm down? A new Christian, a new convert, right? They're ready to, my pastor going up would always say, uh, take on hell with a water pistol, right? You're ready to just preach it and you want to live it and you want to know it, man. Is there a Bible study? I'm showing up. If somebody needs prayer, is there somebody we can serve? Is there somebody that I can witness to at work? They're, they're, they're so keen and aware of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Like they're just there. Like I'm there. I'm on fire. I'm there on that summit. But it's as we go onward in the Christian life, we lose vision of that love. And so Jesus gives us really the prescription here, doesn't he? He says, do these two things. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember the preciousness of the gospel. And then repent. And go back there. Go back there. Paul in Romans chapter 5 says it like this. Um, we rejoice in our sufferings 
Knowing suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, hope doesn't put us to shame. So how, how do I then in Paul's, love, Paul's words keep that, keep that going? Like how is it possible to do all that? He ends up by saying because God's love has been poured into your heart. That's how. And note, note what Jesus says after that. He says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The, ba- the Bible's strangely silent on who they are. They're mentioned once again in the letter to Pergamum. But given the cult worship of the time, given the sexual immorality that that, uh, Jesus is addressing with with Pergamum, we can imagine this was some kind of cult and they were doing that very thing. They were allowing uh, immorality. They were allowing false doctrine. So Jesus isn't down on loving truth. He's not down on loving truth and doctrine. The Bible just teaches us don't love truth without a hard love, right? Because then you're going to be the doctrine behavior police, right? And you're just, you're just there to tell everybody why they're doing things wrong. And Jesus has said, no, it's, it's the truth of the gospel lived out in what? The love that comes from embracing the gospel. I found a, a poem that goes along with this. You know, I like good poems. And the poem says, well, the poem's entitled, Love Makes Obedience. Love makes obedience a thing of joy. To do the will of one we like to please is never hardship, though it tax our strength. Each privilege of service, love will seize. Love makes us loyal, glad to do or go, and eager to defend and name or cause. Love makes the drudgery from common work, takes the drudgery from common work, and asks no rich reward or great applause. Love gives us satisfaction in our task and wealth and learning lessons of the heart. Love sheds a light of glory on our toil and makes us humbly glad to have a part. Love makes us choose to do the will of God. Love makes us choose to do the will of God, to run His errands and proclaim His truth. It gives our hearts an eager lilting song. Our feet are shod with tireless wings of youth. What does Jesus say do? He says, yeah, you need to tire labor, you know, tirelessly labor for the kingdom. But Jesus teaches us only when it's a labor of love. That's the only kind of labor that counts is a labor in the name of Jesus for the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, this is how much I think about my love. Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to take my lampstand away. You think, well, what's the, what's the point of a lampstand? Give light, right? So Jesus says, you can't carry the name church, you can't carry the name Jesus and be just a piece of metal with no light. The only light that the church has is the love of the gospel. So if we don't have the love of the gospel, we got no light. And Jesus says, forget that. I'm taking my lampstand back. That's all you're going to do with it. Friends, we have, the, we have the joy, we have the privilege of shining the light of the gospel, laboring in the light and love of the gospel that we were freely given. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The paradise of God. 
Think back all the way to Genesis and remember what, what God said is we've got to take Adam and Eve out of the garden because you know, they can't eat of the tree of life because they've sinned. And Adam and Eve gave up eternal life. Yeah, we get, we get a better picture of a better garden, don't we? And this better picture of this better paradise, it's this paradise in which you and I set free from the fall of man and sin are with God again in this eternal new heaven and new earth. And Jesus says it's for the one who conquers. It's for the one who conquers. So Jesus says, toil and labor for your own soul. Don't think it a small thing. Toil, labor for those people that God puts in your life, those believers. Toil and labor for one another's holiness. Toil and labor to help one another get home. Toil and labor to preach the gospel to a world that doesn't know it. And toil in that love. Toil in that love. And you think, well, what if I don't love God enough? What if I can't love God good enough? If love's the engine... If love's the engine to keep the car of my obedience going, what if I run out of fuel? What do I do? do? Well, you know, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. He says, And all these things were more than conquerors through Him who loved us. See, it's not about how well you can love God. It's about believing that God has perfectly loved you in Jesus. And because God loved you first, what's the Bible say? I can love him back. So friends, it's never dependent on how good my love is. It's always dependent on believing, man, God loves me perfectly. Because in seeing the love and the grace of God and the cross of Jesus, I'm filled with the love of God. And that love drives me on in drudgery and toil and grace sky days and everything to be faithful and to conquer so that I may do that thing that Jesus calls me to do, inherit eternal life. I don't know where you are. Maybe your Christian life feels stale and maybe you just feel like you're stuck. Jesus says, look to Him. Look to Him and see how He has loved you perfectly. Look to the very end. That's the amazing thing about us walking through the book of Revelation. Jesus is like, look, here's the end. And it works out great. It works out really great for Him and His people. So He says, come on home. Keep going. There's joy in the midst of the toil because there's a promise Life everlasting. It's what God has done for us, not what we can do for Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, oftentimes, um, as wonderful as a gift um, that Your love is, we are so prone to, um, Lord, look at other things, things we think deserve our attention, things that we think are... um, problems, trials that are bigger than we are, issues that are going to be our undoing, where we look at seasons of life or we don't so much feel you're right here or we just feel like we're failures in the Christian life. Lord, just turn our eyes to Jesus, God, that we may see it's not about us. It's not about how well we can perform for God. It's about believing and receiving Jesus who has done all these things perfectly. It's about surrendering to the Spirit of Christ so that Christ lives in and through us as a Christ does His work in our hearts and lives. Father, let us see how small and how frail and how helpless we are and then rejoice in it. 
Because it's only in our weaknesses that you're strong. It's in seeing how much we need you that you show up. So Lord, let us put our hand to the plow and work hard for the kingdom. Not waste these few precious moments of life that we have. And Lord, live for the eternity that's to come. Let it all be, God, we pray for your glory. It's in Christ's name.